This episode of the Memory Palace is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Memory Palace. I'm Nate DeMeo. They had built a silent room. An engineer at Harvard, Dr. Leo Baranek, and his graduate student, Harvey Sleeper, were working with the United States government during World War II to improve communications during combat. Specifically, how to make radios and headphones that would transmit clearly within cockpits in the middle of dogfights or in the bellies of tanks under fire, and to figure out a way to build a loudspeaker that could broadcast commands from ships just offshore to soldiers and marines storming a beach during the chaos of a mass amphibious assault at the foot of a fortified cliff. This was 1943. And this last part proved to be an extraordinary challenge. In order to test various abilities of various speakers, the engineers needed to first establish a control, a baseline from which they could extrapolate and begin to mathematically model how the projected sound waves would travel in different environments and under various conditions. They would need to create a testing chamber that didn't echo. And so they spent $350,000 of Uncle Sam's money building a concrete cube 50 feet on each side and then filled it with seven train carloads of fiberglass formed into thousands of interlocking three-dimensional wedges that would absorb and dampen all vibration, such that any echo would sound at frequencies and volumes undetectable by humans. It would be, in other words, completely silent. Dr. Baranek called it an anechoic chamber. People on campus called it the Baranek box. John Cage had spent his life seeking the new, Maybe because his father was an inventor of submarines and radios and jet engines, methods for space travel that never quite made it off the drawing board. Maybe because his mother nudged him toward the arts and nudged her sister to teach him the piano. Maybe because his aunt was the perfect teacher and didn't just teach him to play piano, but taught him to play, to make his own instruments from balloons filled with rice, taught him that a radiator could make music if you just had a good stick. And he kept exploring and kept playing in college and grad school, where he studied with experimental composers who found in young John Cage a fellow traveler and helped launch him on a career and a life spent forever searching for new ideas and new modes of living and new sounds. And so when the then esteemed composer heard about Dr. Baranek's miraculous box, that room with no sound at all, well, that was new. And so some afternoon after the war, John Cage went to Harvard to listen to the sound of nothing at all. He was led onto the catwalk in the center of the chamber and sealed within. And as he stood there in the center, surrounded by these fiberglass wedges, honeycombed just so, expecting perfect silence, he instead heard two sounds. One high and one low. It was disappointing. He was promised silence. But clearly there was something wrong with the box, something imperfect in its design that was letting sounds in. So when he was out, he asked the engineer about these two sounds. Were there frequencies that they couldn't figure out how to eliminate? Was there something about the construction or about the limits of the materials that made it impossible to keep outside sounds out? The engineer told him there wasn't. The room was silent. The sounds weren't coming from the room at all. They were coming from him. The higher tone was the sound of his nervous system. 
The lower tone was his blood, circulating. And he loved this. He was thrilled to learn that things aren't silent, even in a silent room. As someone obsessed with understanding music, who'd studied tonality with Schoenberg, who'd spent his career pushing the limits of harmony and dissonance, trying to expand the idea of what music could be. To know that there was music within you was wonderful. And as someone who was a student and practitioner of Zen Buddhism, to learn that, in a way, you brought the falling tree with you into the woods, that was beautiful. John Cage's experience in the anechoic chamber would inspire his most famous work, praised to this day for its invention, its audacity, and its wit. It's entitled 433. It is a composition made up of three movements, debuted in 1952. It can be performed by any instrument or combination of instruments. And the sheet music is bar after bar of rests, which means the pianist or string quartet or symphony orchestra doesn't play a single note throughout the 4 minute and 33 second duration of the piece. It is playing now in the background as I talk. And the music then comes from all the ambient sounds during its performance. The shifting in chairs, the stifled cough or nervous laugh, the vibrating snare rattling loose on an unplayed drum as a truck rumbles by outside the hall, the buzz of a speaker, the hum of fluorescent lights, it is the music of circumstance and chance. Because music is all around you. It is even in you. Because John Cage had learned there was no such thing as a silent room. But he was wrong. Giacomo Puccini was late. His boat was due in Hoboken three whole days before. But weather held him up just off the tip of Brooklyn. He had been brought across the Atlantic at great expense by patrons of the Metropolitan Opera to oversee the final rehearsals of its productions of two of his works. This was 1907, and opera was a pop cultural phenomenon. And Puccini was a superstar. So much so that during the three days his ship spent bobbing in a fog bank in the wintry waters off Red Hook, the New York papers printed updates on his whereabouts in their morning and evening editions. They had New Yorkers, even those who would never see the inside of an opera house, waiting with bated breath to see if their hero would make it on time for curtain. And they cheered when they read about his triumphant arrival, just as the orchestra was set to begin the opening strains of Madame Butterfly, and then shifted into a fanfare to welcome one of the most famous, most beloved people in the world. And how that fanfare swelled as he took a bow and waved, and beamed, exhausted but delighted, and overwhelmed by the thunderous applause. Puccini took Manhattan, for all it was worth, dined with Rockefellers and Astors, strolled the Brooklyn Bridge, fell in love with Manhattan's tall buildings and tall women, went on shopping sprees with his friend Enrico Caruso, and spoke glowingly to the press about his love for America, and about his desire to create a new opera, about the West, about cowboys and Indians, gunfights and pioneer girls. And he made a promise Though he had to return home to his villa near the Ligurian Sea, he would be back. But before he left America, there was something he wanted to do. An article appeared in the New York Times on February 25, 1907. It's titled, Puccini Hears Coon Songs. It recounts how the composer of Madame Butterfly and La Boheme 
spent an evening at the Manhattan home of Dr. and Mrs. William Tillinghast Bull, two donors to the Metropolitan Opera, how Mr. Piccini had desired to hear Negro music. He had even gone to a musical review that he was told would contain a selection of, you'll excuse me, coon songs, but he left disappointed. Dr. and Mrs. Tillinghast Bull did not want the composer to leave America equally disappointed, so I will quote the Times. About 30 musicians of note were invited to the Bull home last night, and real coon singers were engaged to sing them. The article goes on to say that though the performance was hastily pulled together, it was an enjoyable evening, and then ends with this quote. Signor Puccini said afterward through his interpreter, that he was not yet prepared to discuss the merits of the coon songs. The following year, Giacomo Puccini returned to New York to attend the North American premiere of his newest opera, titled in English, The Girl of the Golden West. It is a European's interpretation of the great themes of American Western stories, a melodrama in four acts about pioneers and outlaws and miners and it is Puccini's interpretation of American music, bringing Zuni melodies taken from a transcription of a native hymn to a sun god, and then embedded into European classical harmonies. And during the entrance of the dashing bandit at the center of the story, portrayed in that first New York performance by his shopping buddy Enrico Caruso, you can hear the strains of a cakewalk, an African-American innovation a dance music in a syncopated 2-4 time. Puccini never said where he was introduced to the cakewalk, or how he came to bring it into his opera, or build his own innovation on its foundation. And so scholars are left only to wonder whether he heard it on that night at the home of Dr. and Mrs. Tillinghast Bull. We don't know what music the black people brought in to play for him, the music the editorial policies of the paper record deemed appropriate to call coon songs. Formed. And though these musicians, these artists, these people called, in quotes, coons, although these black Americans were described in that same paper as, quote, notable musicians, their names were not noted. And so their influence on the esteemed Giacomo Puccini and on the white Western canon will go unacknowledged and uncompensated, as has so often been the case. And we cannot recover their names and raise up their music because we can never hear that silent room.
This episode of The Memory Palace is written and produced by me, Nate DeMeo. The show gets research assistance from Eliza McGraw and engineering assistance from Elizabeth O'Bear. The show is a proud, proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. We are a collective of independent podcasts working together to make our way through what is a particularly crazy time. If you ever want to help out, you can donate to help support Radiotopia in this show by visiting radiotopia.fm slash donate. If you ever want to drop me a line, please do. It is nate at thememorypalace.us or you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook, America's favorite entirely unproblematic platform at The Memory Palace. Talk to you again. Radio Tokyo from P.